morning. Uh, don't worry, we're not setting a new trend or anything. I, uh, many of you heard I've jacked my back up. <laughs> I'm a little discomfort right now, so uh, hence the stool. So I hope it doesn't offend anybody, but uh, the alternative is me falling on the ground. So <laughs> I don't want that. Um, hey, uh, Bo said that uh, we're not done after the song, but honestly, after uh, Bo's um, uh, communion and these songs that we've sang, um, you're going to get part three of the same message. Apparently, the Spirit has something for us to hear today. So, uh, a lot of what I'm going to say today echoes exactly what was said already. But uh, we talked about the greatness of Jesus, and uh, it occurred to me that as the question, if you were to meet somebody that didn't know Jesus, uh, didn't speak the same language, how exactly would you communicate Jesus to them? And uh, what attribute would you pick? Which characteristic? And I thought about American Sign Language. And does anybody know what the symbol is for Jesus in American Sign Language? You can shout it out if you know. Interesting. It's touching the palms, uh, each palm with your finger indicating crucifixion. Uh, and again, that's probably the characteristic that most separates Jesus, um, uh, what we have to identify him, the symbolism that's used because it's probably one of the most important, if not the most important, or and definitely one of the most unique events uh, by which he's identified. He was crucified for our sins, um, and we, he died so we could obtain forgiveness. Now, you're in the secular culture. You know there are a lot of people that have issues with that statement, that last statement, uh, and why, and I believe, uh, and you've all heard it before, I'm sure, uh, many people ascribe to Jesus just being a prophet or a good teacher, a good moral teacher, um, maybe a man who died at some point um, because of what he taught, but he, he certainly wasn't God in their opinion. Um, they think he was just another religious leader um, whose teachings may have been all there was to him. There's another question that's often asked is, why should I believe in Christianity, or why is it any better or any different than any other religion? And the answer is very simple. It's because Jesus is unlike any other world leader. So today, uh, we're going to look at what made him different, and there are a lot of reasons that I could give you um, that could prove Jesus was superior to the founders of other religions, um, what makes him different. Uh, but the most significant for now, we're going to cover a couple of them, is that uh, Jesus was predicted or he was pro prophesied about. I'll just give you an example, excuse me, about 500 years before Jesus was born, uh, along came a guy named Buddha. Um, Buddha came up with some teachings. He thought they were good ideas. Other people were attracted to his good ideas. A religion was formed. Uh, but then Buddha died. <laughs> And there were no prophecies predicting Buddha was coming. There was no credentials, nothing to indicate that he would have been anything. And then about 500 years after Jesus, um, a guy named Muhammad came along. Same thing, came up with some ideas. People thought they were good ideas, good teachings. They followed Muhammad. Um, nothing prophesied about Muhammad. He wasn't heralded in any way. Nothing indicated his coming. And then he died. We can think of some more modern examples, Joseph Smith with Mormonism, you fill in the blank. None of them were pro prophesied about, but that's what makes Jesus unique, isn't it? Over 300 prophecies recorded over thousands of years, recorded in the Old Testament scriptures, that not only indicated that Jesus was coming, 
It told what kind of life he would live. It indicated what kind of death he would die. Um, so it wasn't just a bunch of ideas about Jesus. Uh, it was declaring that he would be God. One of the books that um, uh, has a lot of the prophecies in it about Jesus and what we're going to look at today is Isaiah 53. Um, I had another intent for Isaiah 53. I think the last time I spoke, um, I indicated there, there are three verses that really just give me heartburn. They're, they're little pet peeves when they're sort of misused and taken out of context. And that's what I really wanted to do uh, with Isaiah 53. But the Lord seemed to have another, uh, another agenda there. So um, uh, it's a little bit different. So we're going to read Isaiah 53. It's 12 verses. I actually could have started back in Isaiah 52 at verse 13. Uh, because it all flows together. I don't, why they made the division where they did, I can't answer that. But we're going to read Isaiah 53. I have the clicker, so I'll advance it, maybe. There we go. Whoa, there we go. I can't, Evelyn Wood couldn't have read that, I'm sorry. Yeah, if you would please rise and please excuse me if I don't. Um, so Isaiah 53, who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of the parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain, even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path, but the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but even who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living. Because of the rebellion of his own people, he was wounded. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds nor had he spoken deceitfully. Though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life, and the Lord's purposes will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins." So I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful because he willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand in awe of what you did. The prophecies we just read, um, some of them spoken as if in the present, but fulfilled hundreds of years later. Uh, Lord, we give you thanks for your foresight, your love, uh, and most of all, making a way for us to be called joint heirs with Christ. Uh, Lord, just uh, selfishly be with my back uh, so I don't get in the way of what you're trying to say. 
but for all of us, Lord, that you give open ears and open hearts that uh, the word may find fertile soil on which to land. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wait, I didn't say you could be seated. <laughs> Just kidding. So Isaiah is often called the messianic prophet because so much of his uh, book is, is written in, in prophetic form, indicating, uh, that again, what Jesus, or what the Messiah would be they, like. They didn't know it would be Jesus at the time, but what the Messiah would be like and, and what he would do. Um, and we just read several examples of those prophecies. So uh, Isaiah declared that this Messiah in verse 3 would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Um, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And, and we know that that's what happened the day of the cross, right? Uh, his own people didn't accept him. He was rejected and despised. Uh, Isaiah also alludes to Jesus being tortured and beaten. In verse 5, he says, The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, upon him and by his wounds we were healed. Uh, Isaiah predicted that Jesus would die. Uh, verses 8 and 12, 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. Ver, uh, verse 12, He poured out his life unto death. And then in verse 9, we see an interesting prophecy. It says that he was uh, to be condemned with the, to die with wicked men. Um, but then, um, seeming contradiction, not only would he die with the wicked men, and we know that's the case, as he died with, uh, crucified with two thieves, um, though he was condemned to die with the wicked, he would be assigned a grave with the rich in his death. So crucified with uh, thieves, buried with rich men. You remember Joseph of Arimathea giving his, his own tomb. And lastly, um, Isaiah seems to imply that the Messiah, after dying, thank, thank God, wasn't going to remain dead. Isaiah 53, 11 says that after the suffering of the soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And again, I have to remind you that this was written about 700 years uh, before Jesus even came on the scene. So, Unlike Buddha, unlike Muhammad, and unlike any other teacher, uh, founder of a religion, um, who didn't come with any kind of credentials, no, no street cred, no, no sta stamp of authenticity, uh, we see that Jesus automatically came with the stamp of authenticity of God, predicted before he even got here. So again, by contrast, Jesus, he had many good things to say, and he taught some of the highest moral standards. Um, but above all, he came in fulfillment of the prophecies like these in Isaiah 53. But again, it wasn't just the prophecies that made him great. They, they told us about Jesus, but what made him great um, was his willingness to die on the cross, um, and, and especially for his enemies. So one version puts verse 12, which we read, he let himself be counted with rebellious sinners. Again, he allowed himself. He, he wasn't forced to do this. It was something that um, he willingly gave himself for. And that's the theme of Isaiah 53, that a Messiah would come uh, as a willing sacrifice to rescue the people uh, to call his own. Uh, and again, that, that death would give us the, or gave us the power um, um, to buy us out of wickedness and into righteousness. And again, it was by his wounds, by his sufferings, and by his death um, that we could actually have hope in the world. Well, other, other people reject Jesus, I think, sometimes because um, 
of the guilt they feel or a sense of unworthiness. They, they read about how Jesus died for our sins. It was our sins that put him on the cross. Uh, and so there's a feeling maybe that they could never measure up, um, uh, up or, or repay the debt. I don't think the clicker's working, gang. Um, if you could advance, there you go. Uh, after all, it was for our sins that Jesus was crucified, right? And it was our fault. It was your fault. It was my fault um, that he was put there. Um, our sins put him there. Uh, and that's what, that's what Isaiah tells us in verse 53:4. He said, uh, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and his wounds, uh, by his wounds we were healed. And again, now that, that's true, uh, but sometimes we can give facts and they're, and they're kind of harsh. So uh, facts are facts, but sometimes the context or the, the, um, the extenuating cir circumstances can kind of soften that, that reality. And so if you can advance one more, one of the first Christian books I, I read, uh, if not the first, was Max Lucado's He Chose the Nails. Uh, I'll never forget that book. Um, it had a profound influence, maybe because it was the first Christian book. Uh, but just the fact that Jesus chose the nails uh, and that he did it just for us, uh, profoundly moving, uh, it gives a sense of, of a desire then, right, to, to willingly give yourself to him. Um, but again, it just reemphasizes the fact that Jesus went to the cross because we mattered to him. We mattered. He didn't have to, but we mattered enough for him to do it. And again, it was your sons and mine that shut us out of the presence of God, um, and it's all of God's desire to rescue us, to restore that relationship. Does anybody remember the first verse you were forced to memorize other than maybe Jesus wept? For most of us, probably John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's how much he loved us, that he would give his only begotten son. There's an interesting pattern I saw in Isaiah 53:4 that kind of shows the dynamic um, between his suffering and our um, and our blessing or our um, yeah blessing out of his his suffering. So it says when Isaiah talks about the suffering and the sorrow, uh, the satisfaction for sin, it's all he and him. It's always referring to Jesus. He did this. He did that. Uh, it's all he because. Honestly, he took the punishment. He did everything on our behalf. But then when it talks about the benefits of the redemption, it's all we, the language flips. It's we and our. We are healed. We are saved. Um, and it's because we get the benefits of God's free grace. And again, just to reemphasize, Jesus didn't endure anything. Um, he willingly gave it to him, uh, himself to it. But he, he, he went to the cross. He suffered the crucifixion uh, sort of because we we forced him into it, right? The fall at the garden. Um, he embraced the cross because he loved us too much to allow us to be held captive by our sin. So he made that way. And I think it's because we needed to realize that the Messiah was going to be, again, more than just an ordinary teacher or because we needed to realize um, that he was going to be sent to suffer and die for our sins um, and to understand the punishment for our sins would literally kill us if we were to take it. I think because we needed to realize that the Messiah would do all that uh, and do what he did because he, God knew we wouldn't measure up on our own. There's no, no standard. None of us could meet the standard. 
and because God couldn't, couldn't bear to, uh, for us to take that punishment and be separated from his presence, that's why God, Jesus did it. Um, and he declared all of it in advance, again, so that we would realize that Jesus' death was not an accident, but a pre-planned event. Uh, as I was thinking through that, I, I went to Psalm 8, um, in verses 3 and 4. It says, when I look at the sun and the stars and the moon and the works of your hands that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And I don't think there's a good answer for that. I don't think there's anything about us that, that God would do that for us, which makes the work all that more amazing uh, and tells us that God loves us with that much more abundantly. Um, we read in verse 12 of Isaiah that Jesus willingly submitted to death and that he intervened on the behalf of rebels. That's the New English translation, on behalf of rebels, not just some, some filthy people. We were actively opposed to God in our, in our state uh, in which he found us. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul was saying in, in Romans 5.8. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But there's always a however, right? So however, if I could get the next slide, maybe two, I don't know, I missed... Uh, there we go. By his stripes, we are healed. I think sometimes we misread God's uh, desires for us and his love for us, um, and we come to a wrong conclusion. So we're going to take a look, closer look at verse 5, because, and this is what I really wanted to hit, verse 5, but uh, again, God kind of moved me away. Um, in the middle of this beautiful, majestic passage of the suffering servant who went to these great lengths to rescue us, uh, we come across this, this verse, by his stripes we are healed. Uh, and sometimes it's used in a way that's not consistent with the context. Now, I really wanted to spend a lot of time here, but I'm not for the sake of, sake of time. Um, but the one thing you need to understand is this one verse can lead to some really bad theology. Um, it kind of undervalues God's and overvalues us, me, man, however you want to put it, um, a theology that reduces, refocuses the passages that should be properly focused on Jesus, and it sort of refocuses on us. So my question is, which part of this sentence do you tend to emphasize? Is it the by his stripes, or is it the we are healed? There's a tendency nowadays to go with the second half, kind of make it a formulaic, by his stripes, I'm healed, I have a cold, I'm healed. I said I wasn't going to do this, but uh, there are such things as common graces, right? So it, to give you an example of a common grace, Matthew tells us that it rains on the just and the unjust. Some things happen just because we live in this world. One of those common graces is God's created us with tremendous bodies, magnificent feats of engineering that do amazing things. One of those is we can overcome some illnesses, right? Colds, the common cold. Uh, my back eventually will feel better. I'm, I'm trusting God. Uh, it has in the past. But some things, just because uh, God has engineered us that way, um, it, but to use this verse as a, as a formula for healing uh, is wrong. And again, it, I think whichever part you emphasize here kind of reflects uh, a mindset as you approach God. So I read a book a few years back uh, it was called Cat and the Dog Theology. It's about 200 pages. Uh, could have been written in 50, so I'm going to save you some time, about two hours and about 10 bucks. You don't have to buy the book, all right? The, the premise is very simple. 
and it can be summed up in the following analogy. Uh, now, I'm a, I like dogs better than cats. Don't anybody stone me, but you, you can see a dog, right? There's a reason they're called man's best friend. You're feeling terrible. The dog will come up to you. They'll do everything they can to get your attention and, and make you feel better. A cat, maybe if it wants to come over, it'll come over. But, um, you know, the dog says, you, you want to pet me? Sure, bam, it's on its tummy or on its back, letting you rub its tummy. The cat is more like, yeah, if, if I feel like it, I'll come back by later. I'll let you pet me. Um, it's, just, it's just a different mindset, right? A different, uh, a different way animals re relate. But uh, again, there's a reason why dogs are, are man's best friend. So the dog says, this, this, is, this is the potential theological snare that we can fall into. A dog says, you clothe me, you feed me, you love me, you must be God. And a cat says, you clothe me, you feed me, you love me, I must be God. And it's the difference between, if you can get the next slide, it's the difference between having a servant and a master, right? God, cats say, you exist to serve me. Dogs say, next slide, I exist to serve you. And unfortunately, again, depending on how you, you read verse 5 there, it says a lot about how you view God. Uh, is he a cosmic Santa Claus or a genie that's going to take care of every need? Or am I here to serve him? Um, again, if you can see the difference there, um, it, again, it's, it's what happens when we, it's subtle, but what happens when we focus the scriptures to ourselves and off Jesus, uh, we do the exact opposite of John the Baptist, right? I must decrease so he can increase, but yet we have this natural tendency to want to increase and uh, maybe not even intentionally, but, but when we do that, we decrease Jesus. And it leads to interpreting God's words, um, his means and his goals and even his purposes in our lives uh, in light of me. Uh, it causes us to lose focus or, or not lose focus, to put our focus on the temporal self and the, and the situations and circumstances we're in as opposed to what the eternal God wants for us or from us or in this world. Sometimes he asks things of us that don't even affect us, it affects someone else. So, but we don't always see that perspective. But I think the biggest thing is God's diminished in the process. Uh, again, we, we reduce him to such a small God. Well, the totality of verse 5 is comprised of actually four independent clauses. I was going to get an English major to help me here. but uh, it, it, The first two in verse 5, uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Jesus is obviously the subject there. The third sentence is, or the third clause is, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. Now, he's not the subject, but he's the object there. It was upon him. And then we come to that last clause again, and by his stripes we are healed. Um, we are the subject of the passive verb, but again, make no mistake there that Jesus should be the main focus of the clause. And so while we should be grateful for our healing, our focus again should be on by his stripes and what he did. And again, the entire passage is about the greatness of the suffering servant and his redeeming work on the behalf of his enemies. And that demands that we focus on the first half by his stripes rather than on the second half we are healed. Because we, again, we just take this magnificent soaring passage of what Jesus did on our behalf and we reduce it uh, to, to me. Uh, and, I, and it's just a danger again. Um, further, it... it 
if you if you make that a formula and i've experienced this with a few folks you take that passage and then be, it becomes a, a misplaced promise so by stripes i am healed sometimes god does not heal um, now i know some people will take um, paul i prayed three times to take this affliction oh that wasn't a physical problem uh, may or may not but god chose not to take it away again for his purposes i don't know what they would be but he has his own purposes but the, the problem is when you take that as a, an ironclad promise and you forget that we're never promised anything but suffering and persecution, um, your, your own faith can be undermined. Because what happens then when God doesn't heal you? Uh, when you go through life with a lifelong affliction, um, I, I've seen guys that really struggle, have their paradigm really challenged about who God is and what he's promised. And it's a, they wrestle with it mightily. So, uh, again, uh, another subtle danger there that we have to look out for. The story just gets twisted, and again, it becomes about me, and God gets lost or downgraded uh, to meeting my needs. So, uh, in this thinking, uh, great stress is laid upon the past tense of the phrase, by his stripes we are healed. It's something that's already been done. Um, and the idea is, since that in the past tense, perfect health is God's promise or provision for every Christian at every moment, um, even as the believer has the promise to perfect forgiveness and salvation. Um, but again, that's a problem. Um, it's a tension between the now but not yet, right? Jesus' kingdom advanced when he came the first time. It won't be fulfilled until he either calls us home or, or he comes back. So it's the perfect tension between now but not yet. And my father-in-law experienced that in January of this year. He, uh, he passed away. <clears throat> At the time he passed, he was operating 5 to 10% kidney function. Legs didn't work. Shoulders didn't work. Um, he was in pretty bad shape. Diabetes. Um, that's the now. When he passed, he's in the not yet. And in the not yet, he's fully healthy. He's fully restored. And that's the verb tense. Now we suffer through things. Then at the culmination, then we will be healed completely. That's where in the resurrection that the, the um, by stripes we are healed finds its full fulfillment. Not in the here and now. Praise God, I agree. So again, the problem with this view, not even counting how it contradicts the personal experience of many of the saints and the inconsistence in the, in the scriptures. Many people were healed before Jesus' advent. Um, it, there's just an inconsistency there. It just misunderstands the verb tense of both the salvation and the healing. We are, have been saved. That too will be culminated uh, when Christ calls us home. Um, and again, the, 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 just a, the, that sense of kingdom now. Uh, somebody mentioned that earlier. Kingdom now. Uh, theology is just, it's, it's harmful. <laughs> I don't know what else to say it. Um, so we, we do, we live in the now, but not yet. And we've been given the spirit as the deposit, uh, as the scripture says, because um, again, God's kingdom has started. He's given us the spirit. Uh, we've been given the spirit to help us through, uh, but only when he calls us home do we get the, the full culmination of that. Again, so continuing with the difference between cat and dog uh, theology, cat and dog Christians, 
Um, we have to be clear that though this book is authored by God and he is the, the subject and the hero of the entire story cover to cover. Uh, again, there's none greater than God, um, and no one higher or more powerful, and everything is about God first and then his creation. Uh, he's most concerned about his name and glory. Now, that, that may give you pause. I, I recently read a, a quote from Dr. Erwin Lutzer. Uh, he was the senior pastor at Moody Church for years and years. But he, he said that God was self-serving. Now, that, that really stuck with me for a second. I had to chew on that. Um, and the problem, I think, is that when we say someone is self-serving, we are limited, sinful creatures. So when we are self-serving, we are very selfish God, however, is infinitely big, infinitely holy, infinitely glorious, infinitely powerful. There is none above him. So when he is self-serving, there's no one else to serve, right? When we serve something else, it's idolatry. God cannot serve anything else except himself. So God uh, is self-serving. Um, and again, for you and me, that's a bad thing. But for God, it's, it's not. It's an expression of his holiness, again, and his glory and his greatness. Um, and God is to be given glory. In fact, he demands it. If I get the next slide, please. Um, yeah, Colossians 1.16 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This speaks to the preeminence of God, but it doesn't really answer the question why they were created, right? Well, I, the psalmist answers that question. Uh, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. So he created everything to show his glory. Everything was created to show his glory. In Romans 1, Paul reminds us that what can be known of God can be seen in his, created, uh, in his creation. All of his invisible attributes are on display for us to see. So God's created creation uh, to display his glory and to draw people for him. Uh, the invisible attributes on display, his glory, his might, his power, his character is on display to mankind. But that doesn't answer why he created mankind. Well, I'll give you a couple of verses here. Jeremiah 13, um, he says, For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made a whole house for Israel, and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord. Why? That they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. Elsewhere in Jeremiah, uh, again, he quotes the Lord, Although our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, why? For your name's sake. And then again, do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Lutzer uh, again made a comment um, that echoed Psalm 23, which says, he guides me along the right paths for his namesake, says that God's primary reason for his personal investment in the lives of his people is his reputation. And we think of the book of Ezekiel. I just finished reading that too, not too long ago. Uh, over and over again, you see the same phrase, um, that the world shall know, or that they shall know, or that you shall know that I am the Lord. Um, and it's Everything is done that he be glorified. Uh, I think Peter summed it up best uh, in uh, chapter 1. I think it's 3.9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that why you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's how we bring glory to God, by being a people whose words and deeds draw people uh, to his glory, to his side, draw them to him. So when we take delight in him enough to put aside our own comforts, uh, our own conveniences to serve him, that's when we glorify him. So even though he created us for this purpose, it's important to remember uh, that we are not his first priority. Um, if I can get the next slide, John Piper uh, wrote a, a quote, and it says, God's first love is rooted in the value of his holy name, not in the value of sinful people. So again, God's most concerned about his holy name and not about the people that he came to save. So if God is self-seeking and concerned mostly about his glory and his reputation, what does that mean for all of us? Well, I already spent the first part telling you that he loved us. He loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son. But that's not his first priority. Uh, we gain the benefit of him seeking his glory. So even the healings uh, that Jesus performed pointed to a greater glory. We think of Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Now, some people would say that would be a blessing. I'm not sure I want to leave the side of Jesus. But you, if you want to say that, Jesus was raised from the dead. He gained the blessing. But what was the purpose? The purpose was that God was glorified through the event. The people saw and were amazed. They were, Jesus was, uh, um, God was glorified. But then we have an account in Mark uh, that states much the same thing. Uh, go ahead and do the next slide. Um, we find that Jesus' healing of the paralytic man, just to set the context. Um, but again, it shows the connection between physical healing. I was going to spend more time on this. Um, between physical healing and spiritual healing, which is what Isaiah 53 is about, physical or spiritual healing. But again, here's the story uh, as, as written in, um, in the book of Mark. So, uh, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your son sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that the, they thus questioned him within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Next slide. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to, uh, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. Bed, sorry. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and what? glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Again, even in the healing of a paralytic, the purpose was that God would be glorified through it. Through the healing, Jesus shows his own sovereignty. Uh, and when God chooses to heal physically, the chief goal is always that he be glorified with the secondary benefit that the paralytic man is now walking. So I'm, I'm going to try to make this full circle, uh, come back to the very beginning uh, and I just asked the question, in what does God take pleasure? If I get the next slides, please. It's uh, God's will and pleasure. What? What did I do? Oh, 
You guys got to realize I'm very self-conscious. Uh, <laughs> start laughing like that. <laughs> uh, anyway, God's will and pleasure was to rescue people from sin, and he knew this be from before the foundation of the, of the world. Uh, in fact, he had a plan in place. That, you've all heard it said it wasn't plan B. It was plan A from the beginning. Um, and the plan was to sacrifice his son on our behalf. And that's why Isaiah could write of the suffering servant and his role in rescuing us. Because, again, this was God's victory. It wasn't a defeat, even though it looked like it. It wasn't man's triumph. It was completely God's victory. So Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, other vers version says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Lord desired to crush him. Well, unless you're a masochist, nobody likes to bruise or crush or is pleased by it. Um, what he's saying is, it was God's pleasure to enact this plan to s save us. It was the plan ordained work of the Lord from the beginning and prophesied about by Isaiah hundreds of years before it happened. Um, Ephesians 1.4 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes, even before the foundation of the world. So this is simply God um, being pleased to enact his plan of salvation to bring us into glory with him. <clears throat> now reading Isaiah again um, in verse 10, it says, He will see descendants and the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Well, what descendants is he talking about and what purpose would be accomplished? Well, again, we find the answer in verse 11. My servant will acquit, my servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. It was God's good pleasure to rescue us from our own rebellion to ensure eternal life with him. So we are the descendants that's mentioned. We are the spiritual descendants um, through Jesus' work on the cross. So he was pleased. Hebrews 2 tells us that for the joy set before him, 12-2, right? For the joy set before him, he endured. And that's the joy, is that we would, uh, we would be saved and have eternal life with him. And because, again, it was God's plan to rescue us from, before, from the beginning, be, from before the beginning of time. So I'm going to close up with uh, verses 10 and 12, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation because I th thought the language was really beautiful. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you an application. So it says, But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants, he will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Again, this is to God's glory. Because he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him not perish, but have eternal life. And he did it again for people who were rebels. If I get the next slide, please. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then the next slide. I think Charles Spurgeon, 
I came across this quote, and he said it uh, a lot better than I can, and I could have probably just done the entire sermon with this, this quote, but it describes, again, when God does something and he seeks his own glory, and we receive the benefit, uh, but it's always for God's glory. I do see that out of this dunghill of sin, Christ has brought this diamond of his glory by our salvation. If there had been no sinners, there could not have been a savior. If there had been no guilt, there had been no act of expiation. Next slide. In this wondrous act of expiation by our great substitute, the Godhead is more gloriously revealed than in all the creations and providences of the divine power and wisdom. So again, because God took the initiative to rescue people that were at odds with him, he had the power to be able to do this, to save us from our own sin. Um, again, the work was so God could further glorify his name and thank God we're the beneficiaries of it. So what should be our proper response? The Westminster Catechism, next slide please. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, how do we glorify God? Because that's, that's what it ultimately comes down to. If we're, to. if we're here to glorify God, how do we go about doing it? A couple of, of quick applications. Matthew tells us in chapter 6 uh, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and to, it's, an, it's an echo of what we've been saying all morning long. If we seek God first and his righteousness, then Matthew says, all else will be added to us. All else would be added to us. When we seek God first, he tells us that we will benefit. We will be blessed. We will, be, uh, we will gain the, the glory or the, the benefits of what he's, he's promised. Or, yeah. So again, yeah, when we, when we put God first, ultimately we do. We end up putting ourselves first. It's sort of uh, uh, the logic is a little twisted there in, in our way of seeing things. But... It's the truth. When we seek God's pleasures, uh, we, we actually end up seeking our own, and we give God pleasure uh, when we find our pleasure in Him and the things that He's given, um, the fact that He's given them to us, not necessarily the things that He's given. Um, if, you, if you read Friday's email, uh, you probably recognize that this was sort of heavy on my mind, this whole concept, but that when we obey God by holy living, uh, when we choose to glorify Him by our, our humble obedience, uh, not only do we become more like Christ, but then we live lives that actually reflect that obedience, uh, maybe in peace and joy and contentment. So when we seek God first, when we, when we do the things that he says to do, uh, we're more likely to, to enjoy um, those. Can I get the next slide, please? So the other thing that we can do is Romans 12.1. Thank you. Um, and this is one of my go-to verses, uh, just because uh, when you think about all that God's done for us, the sacrifice that he made, uh, the love with which he loved us, um, I don't think you can come to any other conclusion, but it says, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Why? Because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way we worship him. So one of, the, one of the great tragedies, I think, is that we tend to undervalue the magnitude of God's grace uh, when we underestimate our situation prior 
to our coming to Christ. Prior to Christ accepting his work on our behalf, uh, we were dead. We were dead. Um, and I think when we underestimate that, um, then we do. We tend to undervalue just what he did for us. Um, we were in open rebellion, again, to the suffering servant, and he gave himself to rescue us. So again, I just ask, how do we glorify God? How do we offer ourselves a living sacrifice? How do we seek first the kingdom of God? Now, the whole chapter of, of uh, chapter 53 in Isaiah is titled The Suffering Servant, uh, and it's all about being a servant. We can be a servant or a slave to righteousness, or we can be a slave to sin. We have that choice. We're, we're rescued from that old life, but we're in the now, not the, not the then. We have the choice to sin or not sin. So I just ask, which spirit are you going to feed? Um, in a word, the way we offer ourselves a living sacrifice, the way we live, or, uh, live to gl give glory to God is by our obedience. So if you're tempted by pornography, feed the spirit, not the flesh. If you're tempted to gossip, feed the spirit, not the flesh. If you're tempted to steal, feed the spirit, not the flesh. Seek God first in what you do. He's made it pretty clear what he's asked for us, and he tells us, if you love me, obey me. So another one, love your neighbor as yourself. Submit to one another. Just do the things that God's asked, and then sh thereby show your love and appreciation to God. Uh, it's not a to-do list to earn his salvation or to earn his love. It's done because. It's done because we love and because we want to glorify and because we want to honor. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let you guys come on back up. Hmm? I want to pray. Yes, I do. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> oh, Lord God, we do. We, uh, we give you thanks for all that you've done for us. Uh, we were in a hopeless state. We were in a despicable, pitiable state uh, before you, you found us, you called us, and drew us to you. Uh, Lord, we give you thanks for your, your sacrifice, unimaginable, unimaginable pain, unimaginable in both uh, mental anguish and physical anguish to have the sins of the world uh, be your burden uh, can't even imagine uh, lord so as we finish up uh, we just ask that you are glorified uh, today by the message i just pray that we found a people that seek to glorify you in every way as we leave this place amen